First Timothy chapter 1, let's begin in verse 12. Paul, writing by the Spirit, says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, with some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that we have your word to turn to. We're so grateful that it doesn't change. We need your word to remain the same because we're so needy every day. We're grateful, Lord, that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. And, lo- and, and even though this world may reject the things of you and deny the things that are in this book, we thank you that it, your book will outlive all of their uh, blasphemies and rejection of the things of you. So we're grateful to build our lives upon your word. And we're thankful that you're using your word in our lives to make us more like you. We want to be more like you. We want no explanation for our lives apart from you, Lord. We thank you that we are walking miracles, those of us that know you in this room. Use this passage for your purposes so that we can bless your heart with our lives. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul is writing to his son in the faith. And we began last week, or the week before rather, by looking at the beginning of him just sharing his heart with this young son, Timothy. Paul had met Timothy on his first missionary journey, and likely uh, Timothy came to know Christ through this great apostle, Paul. And then he continued walking with Christ during the time that the Apostle Paul had left, gone back to Antioch, because he always began and ended his missionary journeys in Antioch. And he kept following Christ, and he kept learning, and he kept uh, growing in his faith. He already had a great foundation with his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who had gave him this great foundation in the Old Testament, about which speaks amazingly of Christ throughout the whole entirety of it. And so Timothy had this great foundation that the Holy Spirit was building upon. Paul came around in his second missionary journey. And we're told in in Acts chapter 16, verse 2, that he was, that is, Timothy spoke, spoken well of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. He had already built a testimony. He had already demonstrated character. He already demonstrated faithfulness. Paul's going to talk about that God counted him faithful, putting him into the ministry. Well, God had counted Timothy faithful, putting him into the ministry, but through the agent 
of the Apostle Paul. And he uses us sometimes to help people understand their calling and what God has called them to do. So Timothy had great godly character. Paul's going to make sure, as we see uh, in the next chapter, that those that are seeking to be bishops or overseers mainly have godly character coming through their lives. And we're going to look at that in depth as we look at this letter, which is really not just a personal letter. It's a general letter to the church in general. We're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So even personal letters that the apostles write to people, therefore our edification and our instruction. And so Paul, he writes this personal letter, but he begins with saying Paul an apostle, not Paul a, an old chum, you know, Batman and Robin. You know, Batman would say, well, listen, old chum. We need to go and fight the Joker right now. And he had a chum. You know, I don't use that terminology very much. I think we should, it should have a comeback, honestly, old chum. And it wasn't just this personal, you know, relationship between them. This was, he was speaking as an apostle. And he was speaking as an apostle because he's dealing with how he should conduct himself in the house of God. We're told that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. As we looked at, we looked at that's the purpose that Paul was writing the letter, how he should conduct himself in the household of faith. And so he's careful to make sure that Paul reminds him, Timothy, that he's not just speaking as a, as a friend, as a mentor, he's speaking as an apostle, and that, and that Timothy is called to be an overseer of this, of this church in Ephesus, at least temporarily. Later on, he would move on to somewhere else, and there'd be other pastors that would take over and and oversee things. And eventually, John the Apostle would actually make it to Ephesus at the end of his life. After he was banished to the island of Patmos, he would end up in Ephesus there. And so here, Timothy is, and he's receiving this instruction from Paul, and Paul tells him some very hard things to hear. Leaders need to hear hard things just as much, I would say probably even more so, than anyone else. And here he's hearing this very difficult thing to hear, that he has to remain in Ephesus. When he says there in chapter 1, in the verse, beginning verses there, remain in Ephesus, that may have been the very last thing that, they, that Timothy ever wanted to hear or read on, on a page that he's reading from, from the Apostle Paul, because he was afraid, and he wanted to escape difficulty. And leaders have to be reminded of their calling that when difficulty comes, that there's a calling that is not optional. You can't just opt out. It's something that God says, this is what I want you to do. And Paul knew that God had called Timothy, at least for that season, to remain in Ephesus. But not just to remain there and just be a placeholder for leadership there. But to actually do something that was very difficult. And what he had called him to do was to end this, these controversies that were going on, as we saw in chapter 1, at the beginning of chapter 1, these controversies related to the law of Moses. Paul said there are endless controversies and genealogies and, and debates about the law, and that these men who claimed to know something about the law actually knew nothing about the law of Moses. Paul could say that. We're talking about a Pharisee of Pharisees, taught by Gamaliel in Jerusalem, one of the top rabbis. He knew the law. And if he says, by the Spirit, they don't know what they're talking about, and they don't even know what they affirm, then Timothy better heed that, that instruction. But he told them not just to speak against it, but to lead. To lead by, by the office that God had given him to put, to, put to, the, to end all these controversies there and these legalistic teachings that they were promoting. And it was hard for Timothy to do this because he was considered a youth. I love the fact that 
you know, he was somewhere in his, you know, early 30s to late 30s. And during that time, in that culture, you were considered a youth if you were that age. I love that. I'm just a little bit above youth. And these older men, however old they were, they were over 40. And these men were communicating these things, and, and it was up to a younger man, a, a one that was called by God to stand up and be the man of God that God had called him to be and say, stop it. Stop teaching these things. And all these other things that he uh, was going to call him to do. So God calls us to difficult things. And we have to recognize that it's not always going to be easy. It's, most of the time, it's very difficult to do what God's called us to do. And we have to keep in mind our calling, because we're all called to the ministry, whatever he's called us to do, to do it with, by his grace and by his power, but to do it. Now, last week, we ended in verse 11, where Paul, he's talking about, leading up to verse 11, he's talking about the true purpose of the law of Moses. He says, it's not for the believer. It's not for these endless debates that are worthless. They're actually, the law is for unbelievers. It defines who the unbelievers are, who the the lawless people are in this world, because it's a law. It's the highest law that has ever been given in this world. And so he says, this is the purpose of the law. And then he says, or anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. And then he says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So here Paul in verse 11, he just touches on the, on the subject of the gospel and his mind soars. His mind just takes off from there. He thinks, he brings up the gospel and, the, and, and how uh, the, the truth of, the, you know, the reality that God came and interrupted mankind with this great news of Jesus dying and, and, and was buried and rose again the third day and how that truth had changed his life because he just goes completely in a whole nother direction. Paul was always amazed that God had saved him. That never grew old with him. After all he had done against Christ, which we'll get to in a moment, after everything that he had done, God still was willing to save him. So just at the very mention of the gospel, he starts thinking about where, where God had taken him from and the place to which he was, God was bringing him. And he was amazed at just the fact that God would have anything to do with him and, and that God was willing to, to use him. I was thinking yesterday as I was thinking about all these things and wrapping this study up. I was thinking about 22 years ago how he took some scrawny, believe it or not, scrawny kid that was obsessed with himself that was determined to become wealthy and become a multimillionaire by all these harebrained business schemes that he had come up with. And God frustrated every single one of them. And he took a, a, a young man, me, and saved him, and absolutely changed his life forever. I shared my testimony yesterday on Facebook, and I asked people to, that I knew that were Christians to put their testimonies on there. And they started one after another, after another, after another, after another. Amazing stories. Then they started posting, they copied and pasted my request to put testimonies on their own wall. And then I cut and pasted my testimony on theirs. And those people just added and added and added. And just the stories of how God can take a life and change it. And, you know, we get so familiar with how we are as Christians and how we're different. We get so used to that, we forget that we are walking miracles. That we are absolutely different people. We are new creations. And how that can get old in, some, in, a, in, a, in a very sad sense 
affects our lives in many ways. It affects our personal holiness. It affects if, how we are going forward in the Lord. It affects how we uh, preach the gospel or how we don't preach the gospel. It can affect so many things. And so Paul is just so amazed. I mean, think about where you've come from. Don't think too long. <laughs> but think about, if you know the Lord today, how your life has changed and how he took you and just changed you from the inside out and made you a new creation. It's, it's amazing. And so we shouldn't go too far from the place from which God saved us in the sense of remembering how much grace it required to save us. It took a lot of grace. And so he takes our lives, he makes us into a beautiful trophy of his grace, but it's not just for the sake of our having a blessed, happy life. That's the lie that's out there in many Christian bookstores, that God saved us just to make, give us a happy, wonderful, comfort-filled life. That is not why God saved us. He saved us so that we could be an object of his grace, that we could bring him glory, that we could be used by him, that we could be engaged in good works that he's prepared in advance, that we should walk in them, as Ephesians 2.10 says. He saved us not so we can hoard the blessings of God on ourselves, but that's our culture. And that culture has infiltrated, unfortunately, many churches and the thinking of many leaders and it's all about self-help, and it's all about making my life prosperous, and it's all about those things. And God wants us to have a prosperous life, but he gets to define what prosperity means. Prosperity is the abundant life following Christ and going wherever he goes, saying whatever he says, doing whatever he does. That's the prosperous life, and it may mean, it may mean the death of us. For sure it means the death of us every day as we take up our cross and follow him. That's his definition of prosperity. And so we can lose sight of that. Paul didn't lose sight of that. And he says in verse 12, notice he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Again, he's still amazed that God would actually use him. But who does he thank there? Notice he says, I thank Christ Jesus who enabled him and put him in the ministry. No man puts any man in the ministry. Every time we ordain someone, we, I say every time, we don't make this person a pastor right now. This person's already a pastor. All we're doing is recognizing it. No man could put a man in a ministry, or no man can put any person in a ministry. Because again, we're all called to the ministry, every single one of us. And what we're aiming at here and other churches that are aiming to be biblical churches is waiting to see who the Holy Spirit's calling to specific areas of ministry to not try to have our fingerprints all over something. I don't want my fingerprints on this ministry. I want my fingerprints off. I want the Holy Spirit's fingerprints all over this ministry because God is leading the people, and he's enabling them, and he's calling them, and we're just recognizing those things. Paul didn't have man's approval. He didn't have man's letters of recommendation as these other false teachers did who were following him around, these different churches saying, here, we have authority because of so-and-so. He didn't, have, he didn't have the disciples, the other disciples' recommendation. He just was called by God, and he went out and served. And so Paul recognizes that he couldn't have put himself in the ministry. It wasn't God's idea. I say to people all the time, don't get mad at me. It's not my fault. He called me to be a pastor. It's not my fault. Sorry. You know, don't get mad at me. He, he made me how I am in, in many ways. My sinful nature is responsible for the rest. I'll, I'll gladly say that. But he says he counted me faithful. There was a faithfulness that was coming out of Paul's life from day one. When he got saved, what's the first thing he said? 
Is that you, Lord? Okay. But he wanted to know what to do. His heart was directed. What is it that you want me to do? He was saved on that road. And then he was immediately commissioned there. And so here Paul is saying, I want to recognize it is God who's enabled me. Which means, Timothy, God's enabled you. God's called you. You don't want to stay in Ephesus. You're supposed to stay in Ephesus. And God's called you. He's enabled you. He put you in the ministry. He's not just sharing this just to add, add stuff for, for chapter 1. He's saying to Timothy, this is your calling. God enabled you. God called you. God has counted you faithful. I, t- I read Acts chapter 16, verse 2. He had that great reputation. Paul gave time for his faith to kind of flourish and recognize that calling on his life and said, come with me on my missionary journeys. It could mean the death of you. Mom, you may never see your son again. But God's calling him. And he answered that call. And he doesn't take those callings back. You can't do, what is it uh, when you, people don't usually, you know, when they send something, they don't send it to where they can send, someone could return it for free anymore. (laughs) You know, COD, cash on delivery or whatever. God doesn't take those things back. He doesn't, he's he's not like Costco, where Costco takes things back for, you know, he doesn't take our calling and, and, and our election back. And so he knows what he's getting. I just shared, um, three weeks ago or so with this man that didn't know Christ and I led him to Christ but he was concerned before he prayed that he was going to let God down because he knew that he was a sinner he's like I don't want to let God down I know my behavior I know who I am and I encouraged him I said you know what God knows what he's getting did God know the sins that you haven't even committed yet when he died for those sins on the cross he had to think about it for a minute he said yeah God knew about that and he still, he still loves you, right? He still wants to save you now? Yeah, okay, so he's not going to be surprised when you fall short in the future. No. And it, it reassured him because he didn't want to let God down. It wasn't something that was carnal. He really didn't want to let God down. And so that's, God knows what he's getting when he gets us. He gets a project, a long-term project, and he's okay with it. His grace is sufficient. And we're not going to tap out his grace. And maybe some of you here need to be encouraged in that. You think that you've, you've, you've out, outspent God's grace. You could never outspend God's grace. God's grace is sufficient for you and will be more than enough for your life to be what you've, he's called you to be and to do what he's called you to do. Now Paul gets into his past a little bit. Verse 13, he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, he gives kind of this background. He doesn't get specifics. He doesn't give specifics here. Timothy knew these specifics. I'm sure that they had spent time and Paul had expressed all the things that he was before he came to Christ. It's likely that maybe there was a reputation of Saul of Tarsus even in that area before Timothy had ever met Saul. But who better to ask about how bad Paul was than Paul himself? And Paul says in a couple places some very specific things about how he was. He said in Acts 22, verses 4 and 5, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who, are, who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. Now, this is Paul right before this, the Jews there in Jerusalem, and he says, this is what I used to be. This is the monster that I used to be. And the high priest who's listening now could testify that I got letters of, of, you know, of approval to go into Damascus to persecute Christians and bring them back. 
He later said in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, he said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is who Paul was before he came to know Christ. He hadn't forgot about it. I I believe that Paul, throughout the rest of his life after he came to know Christ, he, he could picture those faces. He could think about those families he broke apart. He could think about those that he made blaspheme. You know what it means when he says, I caused them to blaspheme? He wasn't causing, causing them to blaspheme against Jehovah God as a Jew. He's, he's saying, I made them say things against Jesus Christ. And he calls that blasphemy because Jesus is God. And he made them blaspheme. And think about this shepherd here. Think about how much he loved his, God's people. And he was giving, risking his life every day to communicate the gospel and to love them and, and to care for them. He's thinking about those same people that, that had the Spirit just as much as any of the people he cared for now, just as much as Timothy had. He's thinking of those people that he persecuted, that he hurt, that he, he uh, gave approval for their murder and were imprisoned and, and, and families destroyed and caused them the worst of all. And the worst thing above all those things, again, is to cause them to blaspheme. That's the worst thing you could cause anyone to do, is to blaspheme their Lord as, as a Christian. And so here Paul has this incredible sense of God's grace, and he's the one that God used by the Holy Spirit to write so much about God's grace. It's no wonder he is the one. <laughs> he had to have a handle on God's grace. If he didn't have a handle on the grace of God, he would be paralyzed and useless in the ministry. He would be walking in a constant cloud of self-condemnation about what he had done. But see, God knew what he was doing. He knew that if he saved this guy, that all of us would have hope that God could save us because none of us in this room were as wicked as Paul the Apostle was before he came to know God. And so he's going to say that this is wise because God knew how it encouraged God's people. Now notice in verse 14, he speaks of God's grace here, as I've been mentioning. He says, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. He uses superlatives here. He's, he's exaggerating. He's, he's showing, he, he, how, how can I describe the grace of God? I'm trying my hardest to describe how amazingly gracious. It wasn't just gracious. He was exceedingly abundantly gracious to me with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. God demonstrated his grace. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I'm just not doing well enough. I just don't think that I deserve God's grace. <laughs> it's like an oxymoron. It's a, it's a self-defeating statement. It's a contradictory statement there to say deserving God's grace or earning God's grace. By, God, by, by the very definition of grace, you can't earn it. It's something that you get that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something great that you don't deserve. And that's what Paul says. He says, that's what happened to me. And we need to have a good, solid understanding of God's grace. That's why we encourage so many times for people to read Why Grace Changes Everything in the Equipping Library by Pastor Chuck. No better book that I've ever read on the grace of God. And it takes a while for that to get from our heads down into our hearts. 
where we expect God to bless us. If you can't say, I expect God to bless me, you don't understand grace. Because you're still thinking it's based on you. Because it's not. It's based on him. And he doesn't change. So if he's gracious and he's unconditionally loving, then I can expect him to be gracious. I can, and it's not prideful because that's his heart. That's what his design is. So that we can always be blessed by his grace. And it always will be exceedingly abundant towards us. And he says in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now this little phrase, this is a faithful saying. I'll give you a homework assignment. Five times this phrase appears in the pastoral epistles, which constitutes First and Second Timothy and Titus. Five times. And you should go out and find every single one of those sayings, this is a faithful saying. It's not by accident, it's only listed in the pastoral epistles. He's encouraging these leaders. This is a saying, and what he means is, when it says, worthy of all acceptance, it means without any qualification placed on it. There's no exceptions. And when we don't have a handle on God's grace, we think we're the exception to, oh yeah, he's gracious to everybody. I say amen to that. I, I like the fact that he's gracious with everybody, but me? Can't really accept that. He says, no, it's worthy of all acceptance, which means there's no, there's no qualifications, there's no exceptions to it. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, and there's no exception. Every single one of us is, is, is an object of his grace. Every single one of us isn't too good to be saved, and every single one of us isn't too bad to be saved. And, and so there is no qualifiers that he puts on it. But that is a faithful saying. It is true. It is something that can be preached on. He's talking to leaders here. This is something that can be memorized. Many people believe that these sayings were memorized and committed to memory by the early church. These five uh, sayings there, the faithful sayings that are in the pastoral epistles. So he doesn't say, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to make good people better. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I came to improve people's lives. He's not a life improver. We are dead in trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible says about us before we came to know the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you think that you're a pretty good person. Wrong. The Bible says that you're a sinner. That's your designation. We're enemies of Christ, in a sense, and the Word says. That, and, and that we're, we're children of wrath before we come to know God. He still loves us, but that's our designation. We are sinners. And he, he, we need saving. That's God's, God knows that's our biggest need. He came into the world to save sinners. And I want to call your attention to something he says at the end of verse 15. He says, of whom I am chief. Notice he doesn't say, of whom I was chief. Wait a minute. Apostle Paul, I am chief? Was this man a notorious sinner? And we've been fooled all this time by his writings about how he lived his life. And he's going to say the qualifications for leadership in the next chapter is incredibly high character and godliness. And somehow he's the exception to it. And all these other leaders in the future have to live up to that standard. But he doesn't because he's the chief of sinners. And no, that's not what he's saying at all. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says, I am chief? Because he wasn't just adding something at the end of the verse to make it nice and poetically, you know, beautiful and, and, and to try to round out the verse. He's being serious. This isn't hyperbole here. He's really believing, I am the chief of sinners. Present tense. 
He really believed it. And how can that be? First of all, think about how God used Paul. Think about the extent to which God used this man. Amazingly. Just, I mean, he wrote probably three-fourths of the New Testament. And, and all that he did to plant churches and so forth. The, 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 really the first missionary outside of Israel. And here we are saying, how does this man have any kind of humility whatsoever? I know my head would... Huge, probably. God was just to pop it with a pin. There's three reasons, at least three reasons, why the Apostle Paul wasn't lifted up in pride. First of all, he's given a thorn in the flesh because he had an abundance of revelations and it was given to him a thorn in the flesh, some kind of physical infirmity. But aside from that, Paul never forgot where he had came from. He never forgot where God had saved him from. But also, and this is what I want to focus on, Paul had an increasingly greater revelation of God as he walked with God. And because of this, it's very important, don't miss this, because of this, his self-assessment was changing as he got closer to the Lord. As he was, saw Christ more, and as he saw, got closer to God and got to know him better, his self-assessment changed. He saw himself differently. There's a famous progression uh, that I want to mention to you here. Early in his ministry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says that he's the least of the apostles. A few years later, when he writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, the apostle Paul says, I am the least of all the saints. And now at the end of his life, this is really the end of his life, he's only going to write for 2 Timothy, and that's it. He's done. And he's going to leave, be beheaded, as history records, and go to be with the Lord. At the end of his life, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. It's a weird progression. In the natural, we think it should be going the other direction. He should be saying, I'm the chief of sinners in the beginning, and then going to, I'm the least of all the saints, and then least of all the apostles. It's, it's inverted. It's, it's the opposite. And here's why. The apostle Paul's never been more holy in his life at this point in his life. As we would look at his life, we would say, this guy is getting holier and holier. He's being more like Christ. Godly character is being produced out of his life. More and more and more. And he's... he's but he's having a deeper understanding of God. He's getting closer to God. He's seeing God for who he is more and more and more. Anytime that you're in the presence of God and have him revealed himself to, to you, it changes your outlook on yourself. The, the prophet Isaiah, when, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and we're told elsewhere in Scripture he was seeing the Lord Jesus. And he said, woe is me, as I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The apostle John John the Apostle, who laid his head on the Lord Jesus' breast when they would lay, when they, because they all reclined for dinner. He wasn't sitting at tables and it was, they, were, they reclined. I like that. We should do that more often. But he laid his head back on the Lord's breast there. That close to him, that intimate with the Lord Jesus. When you see him in Revelation, as we'll get to when we get to Revelation, you see the risen Christ. It's almost unrecognizable. He falls at his feet as dead. He falls forward, and, and he's, he thinks he's going to die because of the revelation of who Jesus really is. Daniel's the same way. When Daniel had a vision, he was trembling exceedingly, and his beauty, we said, was like ashes. The closer we get to God, the greater of an assessment we have of ourself, but it's not a pretty picture. We don't think of ourselves greater as we get closer to God in, in, in our, without, before our new bodies. 
we see our sinfulness more and more and more. When we first get saved, some of us can kind of think God got a bargain, you know? You're lucky you got me, God, because I bring this and this and this. We kind of can think that a little bit. Then he starts pointing things out to us, these kind of big things that we like to talk about. It's really no difference with God, but these big major things, he starts hitting some of these things, and we start repenting. And instead of saying, Pat, you can't deck that guy, (laughs) you know, anymore. You can't get in a fight. I got fired for fighting at work, okay? And many other things. But you can't fight anymore. You can't punch that guy in traffic. Can't get out of the car, walk over. Hey, can you roll in your window a second? Roll in your window. Boom! Can't do that anymore. Then you progress to where, hey, you can't damage that guy's car anymore or and then it progresses to you can't you can't have a bad you can't you know shake your fist at him anymore or other things in traffic you can't do that anymore then you can't you know speak against him you can't he starts convicting you on that stuff you can't say evil against this guy okay god you know you're you're progressing and then then it's you can't have a bad attitude against that guy you can't think that way When's the last time? I mean, this is a good question for some of us that have known the Lord a while. When's the last time you repented for, for a bad thought or a bad attitude against someone? Sometimes we can grow in our walk with the Lord and we're not getting holier. And it, sometimes we do this crazy thing in our minds that somehow it's up to us how far we can go in our holiness. And when we're content with that level of holiness, we can stop. <laughs> nope. We are bought with a price. We are not our own. And the things that we get content with, you know, I'm okay with not punching people out. I'm fine that God take, has taken that from me. I got tired of being arrested. Um, but, you know, I'm okay with slandering someone. That doesn't bother me if I do that. But God says it's wrong. Even with our spouses. Oh, it's okay. it's, we shouldn't slander. We shouldn't gossip. But somehow with our wives or if our, with our husbands, we can slander and gossip all we want. Not true. Just as sinful. God wants to progress us in our faith and grow us and we become more and more holiness, more holy before him. But that's only as we have a greater revelation of who he is. And in his word, you start seeing, oh, Jesus doesn't say those things. Whoops. He doesn't treat people that way. He doesn't have bad motives when he does good things. And, and the standard keeps getting higher and higher and higher as we get a greater revelation of who Jesus is. That's what Paul's talking about. When he says, I am chief, it's because he's gotten to know the Lord more. The standard has got even, is, is, he's seen that the standard is even higher. He's seen how much he doesn't live up to that standard as a Christian. And the realization of that becomes amplified in his heart. Not that his behavior is going downhill. His perception of himself is getting more accurate. That's how he can say that. And so God wants to have that happen in our lives. Because if you have a good memory of who you used to be, and you have a greater revelation of who God is, what's that going to cause? It's going to cause you to become more holy. It's going to cause us to be more like Christ and be more dependent upon his grace and be more aware of how he wants us to change and become more like him. Verse 16 says, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him, for everlasting life. God's gracious. He's gracious. And here he says in verse 16 that he, God did it for a reason. He showed him mercy. He didn't give him what he deserved as a pattern. And that's, that the, I, the word there is talking about like a script or, or a document that other things are measured off of. That's the idea. 
So God knew that if he saved Paul, the, the worst person we could think of, and how God could show him mercy, it gives all of us hope. So that we could say, it doesn't matter how bad I am, I know that, that, that God can save me. And, and so that's why he says, for this reason I obtain mercy, that he might show his patience, his long suffering for those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And then what happens next is just awesome. It may seem like it's just put in there just, you know, not by accident, but just it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. Paul is thinking about the place from which he came and the extent to which God had to use grace to save him. And he's so blown away, he just breaks out into worship. He just says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't even continue in the letter without worshiping God. And that's how our lives should be. When we share with someone about what's happened to us, and we're communicating that truth to them, and we're saying how much of a miracle we are, it should produce worship in our hearts. And we should point people to the Lord even more. Sometimes when when, when our lives are supposed to represent worship, in every way, not just singing, we think of worship just as singing to God. And that should be fully an expression of what he's done for us and lifting those things up to him. It's not a ritual. It's not something that we just go through because we're in church and this is what we do. It's a time where we express our heart to him with everything that we have based on what he's done for us, based on his amazing grace that he's extended to us. Because remember, worship isn't for us. That's another thing that's come into the church. Worship isn't supremely for us. It's supremely for him. So when we come together and we're singing and and lifting our hearts to him, it's blessing his heart when we express things from our hearts in a way that brings him glory. It ble- he really is listening. He really hears it. It really blesses his heart. It's not just something that, you know, the Bible says it and, you know, he really does hear it. And it really does bless his heart. And that's the least we could do. So when we come together, we're not trying to make you do anything that, you know, that you don't already have in your heart that you want to do. But if it's in your heart to do it, do it. Let everything go. Don't hold back. There's something special about being among God's people and being able to do that collectively. We can do it independently at home, and it's great, and it's wonderful. That's a different kind of worship, though. This is corporate worship. It's not self-centered whatsoever. We're doing it as a family together in perfect unity. But our whole life should represent worship. Everything should be a response to what he's already done for us because he's done a lot. I, don't, I just was telling someone the other day about my faith, and I don't do all the things that I do to get heaven. I do all the things that I do because I already have heaven. And I want to love him back by obeying him and loving him and loving his people that he loves so much. So worship, very, very important. It's still something in verse 17 that's for our edification to see. It's not just something for Paul's benefit to worship God in this letter. It's for us to see and recognize there's a reason why God put it in his word. It's for us to realize worship's very important for our lives. Verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He begins with charge. I charge. That means I entrust. I command in a trusting way. When a military officer charges an inferior officer they do so in the sense i'm entrusting you with something but i'm telling you to do it and this whole thing about remaining in ephesus 
and standing strong, even though he's younger and he has to con- confront these older men that were saying all the stuff that was worthless, he says, I commit this to you, son Timothy, that you should what? Wage the good warfare. It's not going to be easy, Timothy, being where God's placed you. It is warfare. But God compensated with a prophecy. Did you see that in verse 18? He says, I charge you, I, uh, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, by, by what? By the prophecies, that you may wage the good warfare. Now, we believe in the gift of prophecy here. We believe that the gift of prophecy is a gift within the body of Christ. Someone had that gift, and someone obeyed the Holy Spirit's prompting in saying what Timothy needed to hear concerning something that God wanted to use so that he could wage this good warfare, which begs, begs the question, who's doing this? We don't know exactly who did it, but someone obeyed God. And that's a gift in the body of Christ. Who has the gift of prophecy here? Don't shout out or raise your hand. <laughs> but who has the gift of prophecy here? We need that gift being used in the body. Maybe there's a Timothy in the youth group right now. And God has a calling on that young man or young woman. And God wants to use you to give a prophecy, a biblical one, of course, has to line up with Scripture, but to give a prophecy that that young person will need to wage the good warfare in whatever God's called them to do in their life. Every perfect gift is from above, and everyone is important. And so I don't want to minimize this gift and how God wants to use gifts, and not just, there's many gifts that God can use to help us fight the good warfare and whatever He's called us to do. What has God called you to do? What's your calling? Where are you called to serve the body of Christ? There's probably someone within this body that has a spiritual gift that's been called to help you accomplish that calling that you have in your life to build up the body. And we all have to be engaged in those gifts on the receiving and on the, on the giving side of things for things to function the way that God has called them to function. He knows what he's doing. He's given these gifts for a reason. So it is warfare. Again, he has to stay in Ephesus. Remain there. Very difficult. Sometimes it takes so much grace to stay where God's called you. The romance of going is sometimes evident. We want to go, we want to go, and it takes faith to go. But when we get there, the warfare happens, the difficulty happens. And God knows that we need grace and we need his strength to remain and be faithful where he's called us to be. Faithfulness is a theme that he's going to touch on over and over again. And he's going to say in his second epistle to Timothy, Commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's why faithfulness is so important. In a, in a spirit-directed church, you're not going to get very far in ministry if you're not faithful. You just won't. Because true riches are spiritual influence. And true riches comes by being faithful in every area of our lives. Not perfect faithfulness. I'm not saying perfection. But consistency and faithfulness. That's getting less and less in our culture. Where faithfulness in any area is evident. So if there's any place in this world that God should see faithfulness, it should be in his people. And so we think that ministry is a privilege, and it is, but more ministry is a blessing, not less ministry is a blessing. I see people sometimes act as if having less ministry taken off their plate is a blessing. God doesn't see it that way. God sees spirit-directed stewardship of ministry as a blessing, and that we should want as much as God wants us to have. But so much of that happens by being faithful. And have, Timothy even made it on his missionary journey by being faithful to what God had already began in his life. Paul's just said, God counted me faithful. Faithfulness is important. 
And today, I don't care how many churches put people in places just because they're just warm bodies and they're willing and all that. There has to be faithfulness. They have to be an example. We're an example to everybody. Every Christian is an example to the rest of the body of Christ. And people are coming to conclusions about the ministry that God gives people by our lives, at least in part. And so we have to be faithful, consistent. We don't take the summer off. We don't take time off serving God just because we're on vacation. We're still serving God on vacation. Just because our spouse is sick and if they don't need us, it doesn't mean that we just stay home. If God's called us to be faithful among God's people, then it should be all the time. And I know there's times where God calls us to be other places. I'm totally fine. You know that we're not trying to pressure people into anything. But he's calling for faithfulness. He's calling for consistency. And he'll bless that in the lives of his people as we are engaged in it. He says, verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, had sh- have sh- suffered shipwreck. That's easy, easy to say, suffered shipwrecks. You say that five times fast. <laughs> now, shipwreck, they knew that. That was very familiar. They lived where there were ships going to and from all the time. Shipwreck, what does that mean? Is that a good thing? Obviously not. It's a bad thing. It's just, you know, he's talking their faith suffered shipwreck. That's a horrible thing. And he's saying, some have strayed for what I've been telling you to do. And it hasn't been good. And so he says, have a good conscience. He says conscience multiple times in the pastoral epistles. And it's important for us to not violate our conscience. God wants to renew our conscience and refine our conscience as we serve him through his word. And when we reject that and go our own way and do the things that we think are right in our own eyes, then we violate our conscience and we suffer shipwreck. Now, he gives some specifics there in verse 20. He says, Of whom Hymenaeus Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. He gives examples. Now, Paul, Paul, you may think it's harsh. Why does he name names? It was a protection for them to know who these men were. He's watching out for 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 the flock here. Sometimes people will say, oh, don't mention Mormons from the pulpit. Don't mention so, you know, false teachers from the pulpit. Paul had no problem mentioning names when it was appropriate. Now, when it's not appropriate, of course not. But there's a time and place where we have to name names. And later he's going to say, rebuke those who are sinning in the presence of all. And the context is leaders. So he has no problem. He says, so, the rest, so that the rest may fear. There's consequences for our behavior. It affects uh, a lot of things. There is such thing as disfellowshipping, where the leaders are forced because someone's engaged in behavior that is kind of cancerous and affects the rest of the body, they have to ask them to leave. Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, there's a man that he was sleeping with his stepmother, and they were all proud of the fact that they were putting up with this. And he says, put him out. I don't even have to be there. I judge him from a distance. Get him out of there. He's doing damage. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But in the second epistle, he said, restore him. God's work has been accomplished. And the purpose of this is, when he says, I delivered him to Satan, the purpose is not to hurt him. It's not vindictive whatsoever. It's so that he, they will learn the lesson of rebellion and come back to the Lord. It's always for the purpose of restoration. If any of you, and I, I'm not expecting this or hoping for this, but any of you ever have engaged in church discipline here, there's never any thought about hurting you. It would only be so that you would learn your lesson, come back and repent, and we'd want you to come back in a heartbeat. But that's what he does. He says, I delivered to Satan because this world is brutal out there. You leave the church, it's a very protective place. This is a refuge. You leave 
the body of believers, it's, you're, you're open game for a lot of things. So Paul says, I'm not afraid to do this. So remember, he's calling Timothy to make the hard call of telling these teachers to stop these controversies and these genealogies and all these worthless things. Men that are older than him. And he's kind of timid. And Paul is saying, I'm not asking you to do that. I haven't, I haven't already done myself. You know, I'm, I'm leading by example here. If you have to discipline, then you go ahead and discipline with these, with these uh, controversies that are, that are going on. So a lot here. Grateful that we can see all these things, especially in light of the fact that he's a gracious God and he's saved. We really are walking miracles. I know you can say amen, but he doesn't want us just to have that knowledge. He wants to use that knowledge in our lives to make us more for other people and to reach the lost and to build up his body and to be all that he's called us to be. We need to be the church, church. We need to be who he's called us to be by his grace and by his power. Let's commit to do that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We are rich because we have all this spiritual wealth revealed. And Lord, who knows what you've spoken to your people today, many different ways. Your spirit's so amazing and how he can communicate these different things to us that we uniquely need to change in our lives. I pray, Lord, that faithfulness would mark our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would cooperate with your spirit and how you want us to function within the context of your body. I pray, Lord, that we would be very faithful. And we pray, Lord, that you would multiply what we do for your glory. We thank you for the privilege that we get to be used by you at all and have anything to do with you. Thank you for saving us, Lord. Thank you for making us new creations. Thank you, Lord, for putting us in the ministry because of your grace and by your power. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.